Welcome to Get Your Rocks Off with Mick Wall, the world's leading rock and metal writer. Each fortnight, Mick will unpack rock and roll stories. Stories that you probably won't find in print. So pour yourself a Jack and Coke and get ready to get your rocks off. Uh, welcome to Get Your Rocks Off. Um, I'm going to pray that the microphones are working today. I, I don't know if the powers that be... Um, actually aired the second episode <laughs> John and I recorded because... It was it, too good. It was, it's just, it was just too good. It was just too good. Uh, but it turned out it was so good that my microphone didn't seem to be working. However, after me- much, much com- uh, contemplation and research and investigation, it it seems it came down to something called human error. <laughs> Which is astonishing. Yeah. Astonishing. So we put in a call to one of the world's top producers, Mickey, Mick's old friend. What's, what's the guy who lives in Malibu? Kevin Shirley. Kevin Shirley. We gave <laughs> Kevin Shirley a ring. We said, Kevin, stop recording the new Iron Maiden album. We don't know how to turn these mics on, bro. Yeah, Kevin, uh, funnily enough, um, he's now in Australia. Oh, is he? Yeah, yeah he's got, he's got a in the studio. Boo. He said <laughs> the boo at Malibu is ho- too horrible with all the fires and Trump, well, actually, all the rest is, of it. You know, it, no, I know, there's loads of people are, are off, are going, don't when, like it. When I, um, um, I think it was 2018, early 2018, I went to visit uh, Kevin in the boo. Yeah. Um, and even then... I mean, he'd already applied because he has family connections and family out in Australia. He was he'd applied for citizenship. Wow! Yeah, and he wanted to get the hell out of Dodge before um, the shit hit the fan with Trump and all the rest yeah. of it. And at the time, I remember thinking he might be just a tad paranoid. But yeah, turns out the wrath of the wrath of the Lord is raining down upon California, isn't it? So, it really is. Yeah, it really is. Anyway. Um, so that isn't what we're going to talk about we, today. We didn't really phone Kevin Shirley, kids. We just <laughs> turned the mics on properly. Yeah. It, 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 to, to finish on that, when I say human error, clearly <laughs> that wasn't my mistake. There, there were only two humans in the room at the time. And I'm incapable of human <laughs> error, as everyone knows. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Anyway. Anyway. So today, uh, by the way, I'm Mick Wall. And uh, this is John Hotton, my good friend. Um, uh, and today we're going to talk about... Go on, John. We're going to talk about the, uh, the people who grease the wheels of rock and roll, who make it happen. Yeah, we don't mean drug dealers. <laughs> well, actually, some actually, of them... Well, some it's of them... funny you should say that. What we mean is managers. 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 That's right. And sometimes these people... You think about the history of rock and roll, you think of Elvis, you think of Colonel Parker. Yeah. You know, so yeah. right from the very start, the, yeah. almost the genesis of rock and roll, there was a dude there, an old carnival guy. An old carny. Yeah, an old carny who came up and he... Who wasn't and, uh, really uh, a colonel. He, he offered Elvis the irresistible deal of 50-50. <laughs> and Elvis said, sure. Sure, what, what does sure. that mean? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And the colonel uh, said, yeah. when I say 50-50, yeah. I mean, I keep 90. Yeah. And you um, get you 10, get 50. which we split 50-50. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Now, That's right. And, and, and from that moment forward, the blueprint was set. 
It really was. And, and what I love is that he wasn't a colonel. No. And his name wasn't Tom he, Parker. He wasn't even one of those Kentucky colonels, one of the sort of <laughs> Colonel Sanders-type colonels. No, no, no he, he came from Holland or somewhere. He did. He, it, it was, was Holland, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Just yeah. somewhere. Or, or somewhere, yeah. like Holland. Yeah. Yeah. Somewhere Holland-esque. Yeah. Yeah. And, of course, as I'm sure we'll get to, because there, uh, there is a link. I'm a, I'm, I don't want to get ahead of myself here, but there, there is a, a very vague link between... Uh, uh, Elvis Presley and Led Zeppelin, I believe, and we'll talk a little bit about about that later. But one of the reasons that uh, that Elvis was said to have never left America um, as an artist, uh, he obviously went to Germany when he was in the army, but as an artist was because the colonel who liked to keep good tabs on his man and his fifty fifty man uh, couldn't leave America because he didn't have a passport. Never he, had a he passport. Was, he was an illegal. Yeah, he wasn't a colonel. Yeah. His name wasn't Tom Parker. He wasn't American. And he didn't have a passport. <laughs> but he still did well for himself. <laughs> he did extremely, extremely well. Extremely well for himself, yeah, um, yeah. I mean, people go on about the fat Elvis years. Well, yes, yeah, it's funny you say because I'm working on something at the moment which is kind of about the fat Elvis years. So I've been reading a bit about Colonel Parker. And it's very strange the way Elvis's career seemed to map the <laughs> contours of the Colonel's requirements, you know. Isn't soon, that interesting? As soon as the Colonel became hugely indebted to various casinos in Las Vegas... Lo and behold, Elvis appeared in Las Vegas and began giving some wonderful shows. Two a day for 30 <laughs> days in a row, twice a year. <laughs> work that work that backside, Elvis. And, and what I love also about that story is that, um, from what I was reading, so neither one of us ever met the Colonel, sadly. No, we just, no. we just well, met we his just descendants. We didn't go to America. <laughs> <laughs> um, was when the... Uh, uh, and can I just remind people that the Las Vegas casinos were in no way connected to <laughs> to the mafia? Yeah, well, actually, actually, now this is interesting. Yeah, because at the time, at the time Elvis went to Las Vegas, which was the end of 1969, the start of 1970, this is the emergence from the Hollywood era. Mm. Uh, because, because strangely, Elvis had been in Hollywood where he'd signed a deal <laughs> provided for him by Colonel Parker to make three appalling films a year. Every year. Every year. Yeah, but but weirdly, these terrible films made loads of money. So Elvis was, I think he was something like, during his Hollywood years, he was either the first or second highest grossing film star in the world. Partly because he made three films a year, <laughs> but also because, you know, I mean, he was just, he was still big. He was still big, but he wasn't a rock star. And by, you know, uh, as, as the cultural revolution takes off and sails past Elvis, you know, he went into Hollywood as this hot young thing, you know, jailhouse rock. And he came out of Hollywood and past him had gone Jimi Hendrix and Led Zeppelin and the Beatles, yeah. all these people. So came out to a radically different landscape went to Las Vegas because the colonel enjoyed gambling and signed a great deal. And the reason he went to Las Vegas was there were sort of two battling hotel owners. You mentioned the mob. Well, the mob influence was still there, but it was kind of dying out. At one end of the strip, you had Howard Hughes, right? <laughs> Howard Hughes is fully in his mad phase, right? He's completely, you know, vampire. the fingernails, he's naked. He, he goes to the Desert Inn where he arrives on a, on a private train. He disembarks from the Desert Inn. 
disembarks from the train, gets to the Desert Inn, stays there, I think, for six weeks, and then decides he'll buy the place. He, yes, he, does. he buys the Desert Inn. He buys the casino across the road because he doesn't like the light that flashes in his windows while he's trying to get some sleep. While he's got his Kleenex yeah, well, boxes well, yeah, on his yeah, feet. Yeah, and he's, you know, saving his fingernail clippings or and whatever he's doing. Yeah, and, and urine bottles. And, you know, he's got severe obsessive-compulsive disease. He's got... He's hooks into Richard Nixon, who at the time is America's president, and is having horrendous problems with Vietnam. And, you know, this is pre-Watergate. This is, you know, just the, the general problems of being America's president at this tumultuous time. And Hughes has got his hooks via his, via his, his Nixon's appalling brother, who's a Donald Nixon, <laughs> who's a terrible businessman. And as, uh, uh, Hughes has financed a restaurant for Donald Nixon, which has gone completely tits up. <laughs> and now, you know, Howard wants his return. So, so at one end of the strip, you've got, you've got Howard Hughes, who, who's, you know, a, a, a despite being completely mad, a supreme political operator. Oh, yeah. You know, he's got everyone in his pocket. He knows how everything works. At the other end of the strip is an Armenian pilot called Kirk Kerkorian. An amazing story, this guy. You know, he's already a billionaire. He, too, built his own airline from nothing after the war. He used to be a boxer, then he was an airline pilot, and he builds the biggest hotel in Las Vegas. And what he does... that pisses Howard Hughes off even more than that is he builds a road <laughs> that goes from the airport to his casino, the MGM Grand, or it was about to become the MGM Grand. I won't get into the whole story. But he, he, he builds a road that runs from McCarran Airport to his hotel and bypasses the Strip, which is all of Howard's hotels. So this kind of war takes off. In the middle of this, you've also got Caesar's Palace, which is still mob-controlled. Right, And right. Caesar's Palace is on the Strip. And, uh, and so what, what Kokorian does to kind of fuel this new vision of Vegas is he books... He builds a showroom. I and mean, they had these showrooms, but if you look at C who was on at Caesar's Palace at the time, it was very much kind of Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin, those kind of 50s artists. Pack. Yeah, who, who were just kind of playing out their days. They're not interested in competing with Led Zeppelin or any of these people. They're, you know, they're just, they're Vegas entertainers. They do, they do their thing. But, but Kokorian brings in Elvis for his showroom. You know, the first person he saw was Barbara Streisand. Didn't work out. He brings in Elvis. And all of a sudden, Elvis rebuilds himself as this incredible figure, the jumpsuits and karate you know, he has the, the karate moves. He's got the big band behind him. You know, he's just had a big comeback hit with Suspicious Minds. Right. You know, he's kind of big again, but not in a not in a rock and roll way, in, a, in an entertainer-type way. And obviously he's going to start getting fat around. He's, he has two, Elvis has two ambitions at this stage. One of them is to go to Richard Nixon and become made a DEA agent. That's right. Which he does at the end of 1970. Well, high. Well, as a high as a kind. Yeah. Absolutely so. But on legal drugs. The other, Elvis thinks... Uh, uh, Zeppelin, all of those. He calls them degenerates. De well, they were. They de were degenerates. Be, they were to him, degenerate, they're degenerates. You degenerates. Know, degenerates. And the move to Vegas comes at a good time for Elvis because in LA, there's this tremendous dark side because Manson has just, you know, killed Roman Palanski's wife. Not Marilyn, wife. by the way. Not Marilyn. The no. original. The, Charles. The original and the baddest. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Charles oh, yeah. Manson. Who yeah. could have been yeah. a rock star as well? Tried to be a rock star, didn't he? In fact, wasn't the story that. Uh, he, um, the reason he invaded Polanski's house was he thought it was a record producer's house. He yep. slighted him, yep. but the guy had sold it to Polanski. Yep. But, um, yeah, this is a sidetrack. But, but Elvis was very scared. You know, every, 
all of the big stars in Vegas before it became apparent that it was Manson and what had happened, they were all terrified that yeah. something's going to happen. You know, yeah. so Elvis is quite pleased to get down to Vegas and his big private floor at the MGM, and the Colonel's got a floor above him because the Colonel loves gambling. Kikorian, of course, realizes this, gives the Colonel a tab. The Colonel spends all day and all night gambling, runs up huge debts, and and. So, as a result, has to hock Elvis, essentially for the rest of Elvis's life, which is only until 1977. Yeah. Um, so this is an exa- first example, really, long, long and garbled intro, but the first example of rock and roll management. And, and This is how it's done. And one of my favourite anecdotes from those early days of Kikorian... How do you say it? Kikorian? Kirk Kikorian, yeah. yeah. Uh, negotiating with the colonel. He comes to the colonel with this absolutely fabulous deal... I mean, you're right. It means Elvis has got to do at least two shows a day for 30 days straight. Yeah. Elvis doesn't even see daylight or fresh air for for months at a time because you just live in this bubble yeah. in Las Vegas. Yeah. And Kikorian comes to the colonel and lays out this fabulous deal because also don't forget there's no travel costs, no after the initial show's been set up, no production costs. Um you're basically doing a gig from home. Your home just happens to be one of the most fabulous casinos in Las Vegas. And so Kikorian comes and goes, it's all, it's all honey, you know, it's all just, here's all the money, and it's millions. And the colonel goes, well, yeah, um, that'll do for me, but what are we going to pay the boy? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and they're like, no, no, that yeah, one, no, yeah, no, 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 no. That's, yeah. that's just to get me in the room to talk to you. But what do we pay the boy? Yeah. And it was like, well, I don't know. What will he take? You know. And I think Colonel was dealing from the bottom mm. of the deck yeah. and said, "Well, Elvis will take whatever I tell him." Uh, which was true. I mean, Elvis remained loyal to the Colonel for the rest of his career. But here, here are some other things before we move on to uh, managers of, of more recent uh, groups. Uh, and, and the big managers do tend to go for rock groups because that's where all the money is because they are. Are famous all over the world. They're not just some big pop star in the UK or, or Europe or Australia or even America. Uh, and their careers are going to last longer than two years and six singles. These guys uh, are giants all over the world forever. But um, the other thing about the Colonel, one of the many other things about the Colonel I love is that uh, apparently he um, would hypnotise Elvis <laughs> yeah, did you not know this? So, so during the Vegas no. years, towards the end, Elvis is very disillusioned, you know, as he would be, and uh, is constantly talking about, you know, uh, hell with all this. So I'm going to, I'm going to get rid of the Colonel, you know. And the Colonel, who never puts in an appearance, mm. obviously gets wind of all this. So suddenly turns up in the dressing room, and they go into a private and chamber, you know, just the two of them. And um, and and, they, and Elvis is going in there right this time. I'm going to tell him, you know. And they go in, and when they come out, Elvis is as happy as a puppy dog. Uh, yeah, yes, sir. I used to call him sir. Mm. I love that. Yes, sir. Yes, mm. sir, Colonel. And um, uh, being an old carny, an old carnival rogue, um, the Colonel was used to hypnotising. Apparently, he was one of the oh. first people that had hypno- would hypnotise chickens. <laughs> Yeah. You know, they get them to yeah. dance and it'd just it'd be a hot plate, so the poor chickens had yeah. to keep lifting yeah. their feet. Nothing wrong with that. I mean, these days, <laughs> people are offended by acts like that. I mean... 
So, so the colonel employed. I love how we still call him the colonel. Yeah. I love, and I also love. I say he he wasn't. It a wasn't colonel. a colonel. No. No sort of colonel. The colonel wasn't a colonel, but um, he was a great con man. And when you fast forward to some of the managers we're going to talk about, um, I don't know if any of them hypnotised their artists, but they certainly employed all kinds of uh, confidence tricks whether it was sex, whether it was drugs, whether it was cooking the books. Um, but they, they, in their own ways, they, they definitely hypnotised. Not all the people we're going to mention, but the next generation. Them, yeah, and, the they, and they, I mean, you know, you can never fully... It's a bit like a marriage, isn't it? You can never know the full internal workings of the relationship between right. manager and artist. Sometimes they work, you know, externally you think, oh, well, you know, is this right? Is that, you know, is, is, is this best for both parties but internally for some reason it's working they're fulfilling needs in each other and you might never know why well a lot of these guys are from poor uneducated backgrounds like elvis Mm. um and suddenly here's this guy who's promising them untold riches and making all their dreams come true and uh, i've never had an offer like that but i do remember as a young writer um going in to sign a contract for my first book deal and it was a pathetic amount of money. And, and I'm sitting with the editor guy. And just before we go in, he said to me, that they were gonna, it, was, it, was like three, uh, it was like two grand. And he said to me, uh, two grand spread over, you know, two years <laughs> yeah. or something. Like he said, look, they're going to offer you two grand. You say, no, I need three. You will get it because they're desperate, okay? It, yeah. was, a, it was an Ozzy Osbourne biography. Right. And I was like the fifth writer that they brought in. Everybody else had been rejected. And um, I'm like, absolutely, they're going to offer me two, I'm going to say three. We wait, we wait, we go in, they offered me two. I went, yes, where do I <laughs> sign? Absolutely. Yeah, two, are you sure? Oh, I'll let's do. make it one. Yeah. <laughs> Let me get yeah. my jeans off, hang yeah. on. Yeah. Okay, okay. Yeah. I mean, That's be... why you need a manager. That's why you need or a manager. Or an agent, yeah, some sort of agent. Or, yeah. or, yeah. or, or someone Both. you can trust. Yeah, yeah. Or think you can trust. Yeah. So let's move the dial forward then to uh, Don Arden. The Don. The Don. The Don. Now, he was yeah. a bit like the, the kind of British Colonel Tom Parker. <laughs> also not a colonel. And whose name also wasn't Don Arden. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so it's a I theme love. developing here. <laughs> These people may not be who they seem. Um, unlike the colonel, uh, Don managed multiple acts. Yeah. I mean, um, and he has a long backstory. He'd been a song and dance man. He was one of the original black and white minstrels. Did you right, know that? Yeah. Um, uh, his real name was Harry Levy. Anyway, by the time you get to the fifties, he 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 sees that his old musical world is is fading, and there's this whole new rock and roll thing. So Larry Parnes in the UK has got Cliff and Billy Fury and. You know, all these, uh, uh, the kind of imitation American rock yeah. and rollers. So Don goes to America, and to cut the story as short as possible, he comes back managing uh, uh, Gene Vincent, Little Richard, mm. um, and various other. I mean, the guy he was, t- uh, I worked with Don for a while, and he was telling me, and I can't remember this guy's name, but that song, um, um, with a white girl out to sea. Little Chief with the little. Right. Oh, fuck me. S- some song. <laughs> yeah. Uh, 
I'll remember it in a minute. But yeah. it's all about like the big chief loving the squaw and boom, 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 boom. which appealed to Don as a former black and white minstrel. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. and, it, and it turns yeah. out this guy. He brings him over from America. There's no social media or telly or anything. You know, he has no idea what he looks like. This little Jewish guy, middle-aged guy, turns up singing about squaws and Big Chief Sitting Bull. And, and he's uh, like, you've got yeah. to be fucking yeah, kidding yeah, me. Get yeah. on the plane home. Yeah. You know? but, um, but, I mean, Don, you know, by the time he brings um, little Richard here, mm. Gene Vincent... I mean, little. Both these guys are kind of over the hump. They've had their major hits. Um, Gene Vincent was such a drunk and a pill addict that Don told me quite often he was he literally couldn't stand up. So they would gaffer tape him to the mic. Right. Yeah, and he also had a yeah. gammy leg. Yeah. Um, he couldn't. He couldn't walk on the best yeah. of days, let alone yeah. after two bottles of wild turkey. Right? <laughs> so they would gaffer tape him to the mic just so they yeah. could get the start of the show. Uh, because the the contract was, if you started the show and then for some reason you were taken ill, <laughs> you you still got paid. Yeah, so they would yeah. gaffer tape Gene Vince yeah. into the mic, and the band would come on, and Gene would be like, oh, <laughs> oh. and then he'd sort of fall over, and they go, oh, he's yeah. he's been taken oh, ill, taken ill, yeah. It's like Weekend at Bernie's, yeah. Is it? I mean, this is, I suppose, what highlight what that highlights is, uh, you know, the early. Again, the er version of uh, of problem solving. Management is essentially problem solving. <laughs> the great line in Spinal Tap: "I'm the one who finds mandolin strings in the middle of Mongolia or whatever it is." But they do. <laughs> That's, That's what they do. You know, That's the, what they the do. guy's got a limp and a drink problem. So just gaffer tape him to the stage. Yeah. It doesn't matter. Just yeah. solve the problem. Yeah. Do yeah. what you need to do. That, pr- and that became the blue. I think that became the blue. You know, rock and roll was unconstrained by in a way that other businesses were. You know management of of a yeah because i think these guys are certainly smart enough to manage corporations and do oh, big deals yeah, and yeah. run record companies you know or other kind of businesses but you know they're they're in the wild west you know their method of problem solving isn't well let's get some forensic accountants in although sometimes it might be or you know let's ring it let's these bring it, let's maybe. bring in a management consultant to, to see you know do a yeah. time and motion study nah. theirs is like Tape him to the stage. Tape him to the stage till the show starts and get my money. You know, Absolutely. That, that's it. That's management. I mean, Absolutely. that is management. Yeah. He's dead, Don. Did yeah. we get the money? Yeah. We, we did. Yeah. Fucking bury Good. him well, yeah. by the side of the road. I don't yeah. care. We're yeah. off. And, and let's get, you know, let's get someone to be Gene tomorrow, which, you know, again, which we, again might, will be we another, might touch on later. Another yeah. strand yeah. Another story. In, uh, another that we'll come to one day. rock and roll. But so Don... Um, Goes on to manage the small faces, yeah, uh, yeah. the move. Uh, eventually, by the seventies, he's ma- he's managing Black Sabbath and ELO. Yeah. When ELO were at one point the biggest grossing band in the world, yeah, and um, he 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 uh, assumes this character. Well, he doesn't assume the character. He is this character that has all these dodgy people working for him. Uh, the famous story of Robert Stigwood being held from a balcony yeah. uh, was Don and his men. Now, Don told me the real story of that. He said they didn't dangle him from the balcony. He said we just dragged him to the balcony and showed him the ground. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Which yeah. I love. Yeah. Which I love. And the reason he did that was because Stigwood had tried to steal the small faces from him. And Don always insisted, again, that the small faces called him Sir. So apparently Steve Marriott, the night after Robert Stigwood turned up to 
um, steal the small faces. Steve Marriott rang Don and said, oh, oh, hello, oh, no, not so, let's call him Mr Arden. So, hello, Mr Arden, yeah. We had uh, uh, Robert Stigwood here last night. He, he says he could do a better job than you. <laughs> oh, did, did he? Did he? Did he, oh, did he Robert now? Stigwood, you say? Yeah, yeah let yeah. me just write that name down. <laughs> so Don and the crew, and, he, and I can't remember the name. It's all in, uh, uh, I ghosted his memoir years ago. It's called Mr Big. Yeah. So all the names are in there. But it's all like cra- Mad Frankie and yeah, 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 Crazy yeah. Larry. Did, and, it, am I completely wrong? Did he have Peter Grant working for him at one Peter point? Peter Grant yeah. was Don Arden's driver. That's right, yeah. Yeah, so Peter yeah. Grant learned everything from Don. And again, Peter Grant was a, uh, was a heavy, wasn't he? I mean, he's a wrestler and a big, I mean, a huge, strong, yeah. physically strong guy. He was enormous. Yeah. And, but he'd also been a bouncer. He'd been a strong arm man yeah. for one of the major slum landlords in London. Yeah. Um, so, Don, so Don, just to finish with Don, I mean, Don um, told me... But, but what's in just to chime in... On the Stigwood story, which, as you say, actually, when you hear the real story, becomes slightly exaggerated. He wasn't just shown the balcony; he was held over the balcony. Yes. But, you know, yes. but this show, you only need to do that once. You know, it's, and we're still talking. Yeah, about we're it. still talking. Yeah, everyone knew once Don Arden had done that. Everyone knew. Well, you know, I, <laughs> I don't want him to hold me. Don't hold me over the balcony, Don. You know, you only need to do it once. It's an amazing thing. Although in Don's case... He, <laughs> he might have done it more than he once. He definitely did yeah, it more than once. Yeah. And I'll, I'll tell you one quick story because it's, it's too good to miss. He, and, and this is not a, a famous Don story, though it's in the book. But I was, I, this was, I was blown away when he told me this. Um, towards the end of the 60s, The Move, who were a, a, a big hit band in the UK, um, they were managed by a guy called Clifford Davis. And... Uh, all the managers were dodgy, you know, and Clifford Davis, his kind of calling card was that he was part of the Waterloo mob. (laughs) Like there was some East London, South London thing going on. And uh, and he had his offices down there. And um, so uh, apparently uh, Clifford Davis finds out Don is is now going to steal the move from him. So Clifford Davis issues an ultimatum to Don. And Don told me, he said, he immediately got his driver to drive him to uh, Clifford's office in Waterloo. He said, I walked in. He said, I had a modus operandi. I would walk in, uh, get all the phones ripped out from the wall so no one can call for help. Then straight into Clifford's office. He said, Clifford's sitting behind a desk with a big cigar. He goes, first thing out of his mouth was, I know where you live, Arden. And Don goes, I didn't say anything. I just went behind the desk, I grabbed him by the throat, I took the cigar, I ground it into his forehead. (laughs) And I said, and what was he doing? He said, oh, you know, screaming and crying and struggling. Because Don had also been a strong man uh, and a wrestler. Um, Don told me in his days of being a song and dance man, where they were travelling, uh, getting a train to travel to the next provincial town for for a gig, he would always, the other guys would get in a taxi or a bus, he would run to the station carrying his suitcases wow, yeah. to stay fit. And he had a chest like a barrel. I mean, yeah. the guy was strong. So he's got Clifford Davis. He said, um, he said, after that, I smashed up his office. <laughs> I felt so good. I dismissed my driver and I walked back to Knightsbridge or wherever he was. You know. I floated back to Knightsbridge. Yeah, I felt so yeah, good. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, but, but Don's driver, 
is Peter Grant. Yeah. And, and Peter Grant um, uh, was driving uh, Gene Vincent when, when Gene was at his worst. And apparently Don said uh, Don the worst time was when Peter Grant rang him and said, Don, you've got to get here. Gene's gone mad. He's, he's <laughs> shooting up the place, meaning guns. And, and what it was was Gene had gone round to this flat somewhere in London where the love of his life, he was convinced, was having an affair with someone. And he was looking through the keyhole, banging on yeah. the door, and she wouldn't come to the door. So he started firing the gun through the <laughs> keyhole. <laughs> Peter Grant's going, oh, Don, Don. So yeah. Don turns up and pays up, fuck's sake, Gene, smack, smack, yeah. smack. Yeah. Gives the gun to Peter. And after that, Don said he always uh, uh, carried a gun into meetings. He said it was amazing. He wouldn't even reference it. <laughs> it was it. amazing. He would because go into people a... who'd never seen a gun immediately, yeah, yeah did yeah. what I wanted. Yeah. He yeah. said he would go into meetings with some record company. Uh, he said he did a fantastic deal with EMI in the end of the 60s, him and Andrew Lou Golden. Yeah. Andrew Lou Golden was desperate for cash. So they invented a group that didn't exist. <laughs> And they went to a meeting at EMI. And as Don walked in, he just pulled out the gun and just put it on the table. Doesn't even mention it, just puts the gun on the table. And the guy signed the band sight unseen and wrote them a cheque. Uh, and Don goes, years, he goes, 10 years later. I can't remember the man's name. He goes, 10 years later, I bumped into Larry or whatever his name is. He was still moaning about it. Yeah. <laughs> So Peter Grant gets his grounding in rock management from, from Don Arden. And of course, then Peter goes on to become possibly the most uh, famous rock manager yeah. of them all when he yeah. manages uh, Led Zeppelin. Led Zeppelin, yeah, yeah, yeah. And becomes a, almost a part of the story of the band. Or not almost, oh, is, well, is a part of the story of the band. Yeah, he's like the yeah. fifth member. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I, I met Peter a couple of times. At one point in about 95, um, I did a deal with Peter to ghost his memoir. Right. And uh, sadly, he died before. Mm. But, we ha but we had a contract. Did you, have, did you have a gun on the table? When you <laughs> no, by then he'd become quite avuncular. <laughs> yeah. In a kind yeah. of a yeah. godfather Well, he was, way. because I remember, I'm sure you remember, I'm sure this is what you were going to say, is I remember, you know, he was this figure of sort of myth and legend. Once Zeppelin had uh, had broken up, and uh, he'd also managed Bad Company, hadn't he? Absolutely, you know, yeah. Uh, but but I mean, both of those bands were pretty much done. Uh, like Grant was probably not involved with them anymore. He he he'd done that great thing of sort of disappearing to the country or whatever it is, and you you know he's just a mythical figure. And then I, well, we were both working at Kerrang. In my memory, it was when we were at the building at Blackfriars. It but was, that, yeah. Or um, was it? I thought it was, it was Greater London House. Oh, see, I thought it was the, the, Ex the Express oh, Building. Oh, well, you're probably right. But I don't know. I can't. Uh, you know, it could be a, a, a fake. But Peter Grant suddenly comes back and he announces he's going to going to do an interview no he was going to take everyone to lunch wasn't he that was it. he was going to take everyone to lunch <laughs> and, it's, and it's like they might as well have said god has been on the phone and he's going to show you the mysteries of the universe yeah, you know yeah. going to lunch with peter grant yeah, well and wasn't was that the occasion where um he told the story of the suitcases with the false the, bottoms we, yeah absolutely this is a well you told the no, story no, well, you so were there so you, well, it, okay well essentially 
Led Zeppelin will go on tour in America. This is from Peter Grant. We know this, it's lunch, you know, it's lunch. You tell stories at lunch, don't you? Is it true? Is it not true? Who knows? And he said he had suitcases manufactured that could hold $1 million. Now, $1 million, it it is quite a lot. It's quite a big suitcase you need for a million. People think a million dollars in cash, you see it in a film, you know, it's in a little briefcase. It ain't in in a little briefcase. You know, a million dollars is a lot. He had suitcases, and, and every time one of these suitcases was full of a million dollars, they would throw it into the hold of the private plane that was flying around America. And at the end of the tour, the private plane took off and it flew into London and the suitcases were disembarked and taken off and in came however many million dollars, which Peter Grant then... So, I mean, you know, Mr Taxman... <laughs> has just had the equivalent of the, you know, the gun has been put on the table. On the table. And, uh, well, but, I mean, this is, this is the lunch story. He also told another phenomenal story, yeah, go on. Which, which was about Elvis Presley. And uh, he said, this, this was at the time. Now, as we mentioned earlier, Colonel Parker could never leave America. Right. You know, he, he couldn't leave America. Elvis, by all accounts, was desperate to go. He wanted to go on tour. He wanted to get out of Las Vegas. While he was doing Las Vegas, he would still do tours in America. And yep. He was still popular. He, yep. I think at one point he did something like the Houston Astrodome. You know? right. And there's 90,000 people. So he's getting all these offers to come to Europe. He's never been to Europe. There's no doubt if Elvis had come to Europe, it would have been mm. massive. Mm. You know, there's, it would have been massive. He's never been, you know. And, uh, and I, I believe, well, again, this is, I, I mean, I think came from Peter Grant rather than the colonel, was that it, the colonel would allow Grant to look after Elvis while Elvis was, uh, while right. was in you, you know, I think the colonel knew that Peter Grant was rock solid, similar sort of background, you know. I think he knew that it... it well, 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 Don had actually tried yeah. to bring Elvis in in the early oh, okay. 60s, and so there was a, there's a familial link there yeah. going all the way back to our... Oh, all the way back, OK. So they're, they're trying to do this deal, and they're in Las Vegas. By this point, this, I think it must have... Well, 70, Elvis died in 77. When did Led Zeppelin split up? 79? 80. It? 80, 80. Was 80. So it's probably coming towards the end of Led Zeppelin right. as well, although they're still big. And they're in the... the MGM, they're in the suite, you know, the floor that Elvis has got or whatever. And Peter Grant at that time was, I mean, a, a very, very big man. At 300 pounds. And, and he also yeah. couldn't see. And he said he didn't have his glasses. And so he's, he's, he's in this huge suite and Elvis is there, you know, and he sees this big white sofa at the end of the room. So he goes over and he like he's oh desperate to sit down. He's been standing up bullshitting all these people, you know. And he goes over and he sits down on this massive white sofa, like he's eighteen stone, crunches down, <laughs> and the sofa moves underneath him, you know. And he goes, oh, he says, ah, oh, oh, you know. And he looks down and he's sat on Vernon Presley, Elvis's, who, Elvis's dad. dad, who was in a white suit. <laughs> he had white hair and a white beard. <laughs> And he was sitting on this white sofa, and Peter Grant just didn't see him. And he, and he, he said, uh, he said there was this great line. He said, as they were all saying goodbye, he said to Elvis, he said, uh, Elvis, I'm sorry for sitting on your daddy. And Elvis said to him, stick around. There could be a job for you yet. <laughs> it reminds me a of great um, story. when uh, Christopher in The Sopranos sits, did you ever see that? He sits no. down on, on the dog and kills it. 
because <laughs> he's all smacked out. Right, yeah. What was his girlfriend? Adriana? Adriana, yeah, uh, yeah. And it's Adriana's little dog. It's like a, I don't know if it's a chihuahua, yeah. it's a small yeah. thing. But Christopher's all smacked out. She's at work and he's so stoned, he just collapses on the couch. <laughs> and she comes home hours later and she's like, you know, choo choo, whatever the dog's called. You can't find the dog. Turns out the dog's underneath Christopher on the couch. <laughs> Well, this was Elvis's daddy underneath Peter Grant, which, who, you know, who weighed about twenty twenty five. Yeah, stone. So, I mean, you, yeah. yeah, you wouldn't come just, back. You're just having a few zeds. You know, the party's gone on for a bit too long. You're an old guy. You know, all of a sudden. I remember um, talking about how these guys were the masters of their own universes. Mm. Um, I remember being on the uh, at a couple of shows on the Monsters of Rock tour in America in yeah. 1989, and Metallica were quite low on the bill still. They were like second on that day or something, and um, so it meant they had the whole afternoon to piss around. And I remember being with them in their mobile dressing room, and some guy, some you know important person, comes back. And um, he's looking for someone. He sees Peter Mensch, who was Metallica's co-manager, yeah. someone mm-hmm. we're going to talk about in a minute. And he says he doesn't obviously doesn't know who Mensch is. And he goes, "Who are you?" And Mensch goes, "I'm God. <laughs> who are you?" And the bloke was like, "Oh, uh, uh, uh." Mensch yeah. goes, "I don't think you heard me. In round here where you are now, I am God. So what do you want? What can God do for you?" Yeah, Ooh. and he wasn't smiling. Yeah, yeah. he wasn't joking because yeah. because Peter Mensch was fucking god. Yeah. Um, at that point. Yeah. Well, I've got to tell you, this might be a good cue into uh, into the people we're going to talk about. Uh, you'll remember again, slightly earlier days on Kerrang, there was a great schism in the staff at one point, and half of the staff left on one day yep. to go off and work for the Germans. <laughs> metal the Hammer. Germans who owned Metal Hammer at the time. Yeah. Anyway, it was, I was offered that, that, that job, by the way, as editor. Of Metal Hammer. Revealed now, folks. Yeah, yeah. The, fork, the, the road not taken for Mick Wall. Mick Zawal, they would have called him. <laughs> That's what he would have been known as in German. Well, as a judge, the, the, the day everybody left, and it was a Sunday. And it was one, it was one day, wasn't it? Yeah, they all they, went, it was, it was overnight. It was, yeah, it was half overnight. the start. And they kind of did that deliberately to fuck up Jeff Barton, yeah. who was the editor of the magazine, yeah. who they'd all sort of taken against. There was Dante and his followers, yeah. who was deputy editor, and Jeff editor and jeff was a little bit out of touch yeah um and it was a sunday i mean in those these days we all work all kinds of weird days it doesn't yeah. matter so didn't work sundays in those listen <laughs> rock and roll stops at the weekend kids in those days gun or no gun so my phone rings uh at about 11 o'clock on a sunday morning and just as a because i'd only just heard about what had happened yeah. so i picked up the phone as a joke i went metal hammer <laughs> and it was jeff on the phone and it was uh, like he was, yeah, 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 you know he went yeah. not you as well <laughs> and i went what he said i said no that was a joke i was kidding yeah honest yeah yeah, well, and it wasn't it in my memory again. It was just before Christmas. So I don't know if that's right. It was just but, as Kerrang no, went weekly. Oh, just as Kerrang went weekly. That's right. I, no, so this is getting to the point. So I think I, he he also I think he must have rung everyone around that day because he he rang me and said, oh, "Are you staying?" And I was I was about twelve years old. Oh, of course not. <laughs> so he goes, uh, "You know, it's less money than you've already." Oh, okay, that's no problem. So, <laughs> but. 
But I think you then sort of stepped into the breach and helped out. But they decided anyway, in their wisdom, they would appoint me news editor. And I think Jeff said, we'll start after Christmas or something like that. It must have been something like that. I don't remember that. You, maybe you don't know this then. Do you not know who recommended you as news editor? Uh, was it Peter Grant? Or it was, was me. <laughs> no, I know. I do me. know that. It was I, me old mate, Mick Wall. I stepped Did in. me a favour. I stepped in as temporary news editor. Yeah. Temporary um, news yeah. editor. Yeah. Yeah, that was the height of my career. Yeah, Tem- yeah. Temporary the news drop of, The drop of dreams. <laughs> You've made it to the top, kid. Um, and I just, I thought of you. I just thought you'd be perfect. Yeah. And, um, and thank you very much. And, and what, but what the point was, this, I came in on the first day, I was like, super keen. You know, I get to my desk early, which was about <laughs> half 11. <you> know. <laughs> but there's this tumbleweed blowing through the office, you know. And Jeff had left me this note on the desk, you know, because obviously, again, on your desk in those days was a typewriter, a proper typewriter with a stack of paper at one side and an empty tray at the other side that needed to be filled with the news. And yeah, a bit of Tipex and like, you know, whatever, a gonk or whatever. But um, also was this this note, you know, and it said, uh, it was this my first day, it said... John, please ring. And the first one was Peter Mensch about <laughs> about Def Leppard. Then it said um, Arlette Fariki about Guns and Roses. And then it said, I think it, I can't remember. There was another. Oh, Sharon Os Sharon Osborne about because he's obviously gone. Oh my God, Mel, how am I going to get all these stories out? Because Malcolm was all, Malcolm Dome who left the previous uh, news editor. He was. He was. He was, he was, he was, he was Malcolm was a, Malcolm was awake for twenty four hours a day. You he couldn't compete slept. with Malcolm. He was on the phone to America twenty four seven, getting all this nonsense. <laughs> Did I ever tell you about the night I I I I, uh, I shared a room with Malcolm? <laughs> no. This is in the early days, and uh, I don't know who we're on tour with, but um, uh, we're sharing a room, and uh, uh, obviously, you know, go to bed drunk, God knows what time. Anyway, about five thirty in the morning, five in the morning, you know, you sort of something wakes you. I woke up, yeah. and there was Malcolm, <laughs> fully dressed, <laughs> sitting on the edge. And when of you his... say fully dressed, you mean tour t-shirt and jeans. <laughs> yes, with bits of yeah, vomit yeah. on it because he wasn't. He was. He was a stranger to soap and water. <laughs> we should add. Um, and he's sitting there on the edge of his twin bed, just which is next to mine, staring at me. <laughs> In the dark, fully... Cl- oh, I mean, what the fuck, Malcolm? He's like, I couldn't sleep. I couldn't yeah. sleep. I went, well, put the telly yeah. on or read a book. Don't sit in the yeah. dark <laughs> staring at me. He's a wonderful guy. and yeah, Which, which he, made him a great yeah, news Yeah, made him a fan... You know, and I was terrified of like having to... You know, and there are all these rooms that, oh, Metal Hammer have got all these... Because their frequency, I think, was slightly different to ours. They, they were might, once a month. They were once... We'd yeah, just gone weekly. And we'd gone weekly. So, obviously, we, did, you know, we weren't really thinking straight. We had a huge advantage there. You know, Malcolm could... And was on the phone 24-7, but even I, with my, you know, rudimentary news-gathering skills, could beat him in a race that's a week against a month, you know. Um, But it had all these... uh, Yeah, and I was terrified. And the reason I was terrified was because these people were like gods. You know, you said Mensch called himself... they They were gods, and this was... There were sort of two levels of, 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 of finding out about groups. You could phone the press office at the record company. Waste of time. All they would do is yeah. ring the person. Yeah, that you should be ringing, yeah. which was the manager. And the manager would give you a sort of a certain amount of information or whatever. But it was, I mean, on the first day, I kind of girded my logic. And actually, 
I remember the reason I had to ring Arlette was because Guns and Roses had broken up, you know. Oh, again, re- yeah. yeah, again. So I ring Arlette and she goes, she goes, here, speak to Slash. <laughs> Because Slash is living in a, like on a sofa at Arlette's house, and he goes, and he's just like obviously prodding him because because this voice this voice comes on the phone. It's like yeah, you know, because to ring LA you sort of wait till about five or six at night, but it was still like eleven in the morning there or something. Yeah, it was it wasn't yeah. rock and roll hours. I think it's Arlette was awake because Arlette's the, uh, the the Californian equivalent of Malcolm, you know. Right. But but Ar- is it fair to say though at this point Slash isn't what you'd call a morning but, person? Well, this, <laughs> this is the thing. Slash is in this kind of, you know, coma. So, and I could barely hear him, and I'm trying to record it. And I go, oh, so hi, Slash. Yeah, you know, <laughs> you know that horrible voice you get when you're terrified. <laughs> oh, hi. And, you know, I love you. Yeah. yeah. Oh, could you, could you, and he goes, he goes uh, call me back tomorrow, man. Fucking <laughs> oh. <laughs> So I call him back the next day. And uh, again, I'll let oh, Slash, come and talk about it. And she says she's prodding him again. And I said, oh, Slash, you went, Slash, do you remember I rang you yesterday? You know? And he goes, uh, you've still got a band to write about, man. And put the phone down. Really? And that was the story, nice. yeah. So we did the Guns N' Roses, Don't Splat, and that was my first story. Right. And it was like, great, you know. So by overcoming that fear, it was, it was tremendous. But at the time, there were these huge things, like Peter Mench, as you say, Rod Smallwood with Iron Maiden, Sharon Osbourne with Ozzy, and... Oh, and they were dominant, dominant figures, you know. They were, these were, I mean, I was going to say alpha males, but then, of course, you've got Sharon. Sharon, yeah, Sharon was da- very much The daughter alpha. of Don, for those that don't know, of course, you know, the Don daughter Arden's of Don daughter, Arden, yeah. Sharon. The devil's daughter. Well, Don had two children, David Arden, mm. who was very much Don's kind of right-hand man. Yeah. And followed Don through thick and thin. In fact, David ended up going to jail um, for copying to um, some charges that were entirely down to Don, <laughs> which we'll mention in a minute, yeah. um, for torturing an accountant, basically, yeah. who Don felt had stolen money from him. <laughs> so, of course, rather than go to the police... They went, into, they went to a new form of arbitration. They went to a new form of arbitration. Don said to me, I said, so what did you do? He goes, well, he goes, we kidnapped him and uh, locked him in a room. He goes, and I went and got my toolkit. Oh, jeez. Yeah, yeah, yeah. David persuades Don after three di- days to let the guy go. Yeah. The guy goes straight to the police. Yeah. The court case ends up at the old Bailey. Don gets off. David goes to jail. Wow. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So that's a real shortened version. But Sharon is his other uh, child. And Sharon is much more like her father than David. I mean, David was, was the guy you could do business with. Yeah. They told me, what David told me what would happen is him and Don would go into a meeting. Don would smash the joint yeah. up, scream at yeah. people, show yeah. the gun, storm out, and then yeah. go and sit in the car downstairs. And David <laughs> would go, I'm nervous. I'm so sorry. Yeah. I, I don't, never seen him like that I've before. Never, he must be very upset. Yeah, yeah. I'll tell you what, just, 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 yeah. I, I tell you what, I won't let him come back and do that again. Yeah. But you've got to give me something yeah, that yeah. I can give the old man. And they'd be basically like, give him anything you <laughs> yeah, fucking yeah. want. Yeah, and yeah. then David would go back down to the car and the two of them would sit there laughing about it. Fantastic. But David always said to me of Sharon, he always used to say to me, Sharon is Don in a skirt. Yeah. Because um, unlike, I mean, David was, was tough, tough too, but Sharon was tougher. I mean, in the end, Sharon was even tougher than the old man. 
I mean, there is a, there's a whole episode to be had on uh, the yeah. war that went yeah. on there. Yeah. Um, but I, I was going to say, I mean, the, 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 the thing about Rod Smallwood, who managed yeah. Iron Maiden, he was funny. Yeah. I mean, he, was, he ruled with an iron fist, but he was yeah. funny. Um, Sharon was quite terrifying because her reputation preceded her. She was Don mm. Arden's daughter. Yeah. You know? um, but I remember meeting her for lunch, her and Ozzy, and I, the tears were rolling down my face. I was laughing so much. Peter Mensch... I don't even know if I've ever seen him smile. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he was like the Terminator. Yeah. I was terrified of him. And, and peculiarly, I didn't, I didn't really understand it at the time. It was only years later when I look back and I put it all together. But for a very brief moment, Peter sort of took a shine to me. Um, and, you know, I remember Def Leppard when they did Wembley Arena on the Hysteria tour. He found me, and we went, this is during the show, and we went backstage, and he was just saying, how's it going? What's going on in your life? And, and I was, I, I just... You suddenly thought, I've, I've, I'm, in, I'm in, I'm in, I'm on the inside. No, I was thinking, what does he want? Okay. Can I go back to the bar now? <laughs> yeah. I've left me beer. Yeah. Can I go now? Can I go? I mean, I was such a fucking idiot. I didn't, opportunity came, hit me on the head with a hammer, yeah. and I'm like, oh, please stop. You yeah. Know? Um, and then a couple of years down the line, I was at a Queensryche show. He also managed that. Mm. They managed Def Leppard, Queensryche, Metallica, Dan Reed, Armoured Saint, yeah. Dokken. And then in the 90s... And other greats. And other greats. Yeah. It turned into the Stones and all kinds of people. Yeah. But um, And then a couple of years later, I, I was at a Queensryche show and I had one or two small sherries yeah. before the show. And obviously Queensryche were probably in the midst of this, you know, Money. part two of the show, <laughs> which was the entire <laughs> Empire concept album or something. Mind yeah. crime. Oper- yeah, if, operation, you, if you will. Yeah, yeah. the my Operation Mind Crime. And he just saw me and with like a, a pitying air, he went, how's your career going? <laughs> See, this is the other thing you notice about all of them. They're like elephants. They never forget. Never. They never forget. Never. You, you can't transgress because it all gets stored away on the old hard drive. I mean, this is a, a point really worth making, I think. Rod, as you say, had, Rod Smallwood had this tremendous kind of comic persona. He used to be known in Kerrang as the Huddersfield Cowboy, <laughs> didn't he? I mean, he was almost like a, a northern gunslinger. Yeah, yeah. But he'd been to Cambridge. Yeah. You know, he was a self-made man, very clever, very, yeah. very, 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 very sharp, yeah. very business savvy. Yeah. I always remember the great line about... Um, he made Iron Maiden millionaires from T-shirt sales before they were millionaires from record sales, which, if you think about it, was entirely logical. You know, you, a CD and a T-shirt were the same price, but a CD, you've you got to cut to the shop, you've got to cut to the record company, the publisher, all the rest of it. And, and a, you tend to buy it once. You tend to buy yeah. A T-shirt at a gig costs a tenner. Yeah. That, that's your tenner, apart from the 50p it costs to make it. Uh, and so clever as well, in, because Iron Maiden had Eddie. Yes. Eddie the Ed, that literally started out as a little mask on the back of the stage in a pub, you know, and smoke would come out of its mouth, you know. By the time you get to Iron Maiden becoming big stars around the world, Eddie is now this, uh, these days, I would probably laugh at it, but like a giant, I think it was just a roadie in a. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what you did back in before CGI. That's what you did. You wanted a big Eddie, you put a bloke in a costume. A roadie? Yeah, yeah. A big roadie. Hard to find a big roadie. (laughs) 
So he'd go, yeah, you, you know. Um, and, uh, but Eddie would be in all the T-shirts. So, for instance, and again, this is before the internet. This is yeah. where you'd get a tour programme yeah. or adverts in well, the back of Kerrang. Uh, and so they, say they're playing uh, Tokyo. Yeah. No, I can't think of a good example there. Say they're playing New York. Here's Eddie hanging from yeah, the Yeah, that's Empire right. He, he would do, yeah, building. he'd do something for each mark, market, as they say. Yeah. They're, they're doing Very London. Clever, Here's yeah. Eddie uh, on Big Ben. You know, yeah. they're, they're doing Los Angeles. Here's Eddie surfing, you yeah. know. Or, yeah. And of course, if Brilliant. you were a kid in England yeah. or Australia or America, you'd want the t shirt from America yeah. or from Australia or yeah. from France or whatever it might be, yeah. because that was the cool. Yeah. rarity you the, know. the other the i mean again i i don't know this is entirely true why someone said someone said <laughs> that great source you can tell i was the news editor somewhere someone said to a me a close friend yeah, so, of the yeah band. i heard somewhere that rod had actually worked out how much money each the average fan took to a maiden gig to right, spend right. to no you know wasn't trying to get them in debt for the rest of their life. You know, you took 20 quid and you wanted to spend it. So your T-shirt was a tenner, your tour book was a fiver. And he would think, well, how do I get the other five in a good deal? You know, a transaction. So he'd do a badge for a quid and a wristband for two quid or whatever. And you could make, you know, you there was just clever marketing. And at the time, he was ahead of everyone in that. And because of this slightly cartoonish public persona he had where... They used to call him Rod Small Wallet. Yeah, that's Because right. he was supposed to be yeah, really, really tight. tight Yorkshire. He's from the tight Yorkshire. He, he, I love cricket and he, I won't spend I've got, penny. I've got to tell you, I once, uh, the reason I remember going to dinner with Rod is you say he loved cricket. We went to some place somewhere in the middle of winter and got absolutely hammered, you know, and he's <laughs> bloody made Steve's just written this song. It's the greatest oh, song he's Mother ever Russia. written. Mother yeah. Russia, it's one of the greatest you know, And this would be, Rod, you know, Rod, part of Rod's duties were once Maiden had finished the album, he'd take everyone out one by one and tell you how good the album was going to be. And it was just good management. It's just good management. Everyone feel good. You know, oh, I've had a nice dinner. I've had a nice... But we were so... And I, came, and I, I remember hearing... England had been bowled out for the West Indi- by the West Indies on this famous, now famous occasion uh, where they're playing in West Indies. They'd been bowled out for about 50 or something. I can't remember exactly what. I was thinking, 50? They can't have been bowled out for... Oh, God, I'm pissed, you know. God, I mean, it was true. Rod actually, I think, ran next day. You see the bloody cricket score? <laughs> While we were drinking. Cricket and rugby. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fo- football was for puffs. Ladies and gentlemen, we don't... We- we're going back we don't several use decades. It, we don't, yeah. No. Yeah. I, I only say that because John just wrote it on a bit of paper and <laughs> made me say it. But, uh, yeah. Uh, but, but anyway, Rod was this, you know, so so he's, you, you get the impression that, you know, he, he Rod went the extra mile for the band. Totally. You know, he and he he had a, a sort of semi-silent partner. Andy Taylor. Andy Taylor, who was the sort of financial side, wasn't he? Looked after the financial side of the business. And Rod looked after the, the management side and built this. Uh, and the... Here's the strength of what Rod Smallwood did. It's still going. Yeah. It's still going strong. Yeah. It's outlasted all of these other people. And I think, you know, sometimes you might say managers divide into two groups. There's there's the ones who have one artist. There's the Colonel Parker, you know, um, Sharon Osbourne. Just straighten your... I'm straightening my microphone. It's, 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 oh my, it's, <laughs> it's gone like Lemmy's. It's got like pointing up towards... <laughs> no, it's... Uh, 
So, you know, and they're kind of known for one artist. Then you've got people like Mensch who went off and built an empire with Q Prime, yeah. you know. And, and But Rod, I guess, was a kind of one, though he had other moments. He, he, he did have other bands. He, he had a crack he, with other bands, but never quite he, did it, did he? didn't he? have the passion, did he? I no, mean, I think he, it, no, I think that's it. I think it was Maiden, he implicitly understood what they were and had this amazing partnership with Steve Harris where one ran the band and one ran the operation, you know. In fact, Rod Smallwood's, Rod Smallwood's relationship with Steve Harris, I always thought was very like Peter Grant's relationship with Jimmy Page. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, someone told me um, <laughs> when I was having a bit of, having some dealings with Peter, um, it may even have been Peter, but um, said the deal was always in Zeppelin's heyday. It was like, if the ship is going down, you put Peter and Jimmy in the lifeboat yeah, yeah. and the rest, it's every man for himself. And I think with Rod and Steve, very similar. Yeah. You know, as long as you've got Rod and you've got Steve, you've got Iron Maiden. Yeah. Uh, uh, and we'll shuffle the deck with the rest. But But Rod also... I mean, he managed Wasp. He did. You know, he, he, he had a tremendous <laughs> loyalty to them at a yeah. time when people were sort of laughing behind their hands at them. Yeah. And he did turn them into a money Oh, oh they did. They sold success. records, didn't they? Yeah, yeah. But here's who he also managed that he let go. He managed Poison at that moment oh. where, look what the cat dragged yeah. in. Absolutely took off. The first time I'd had any dealings with Poison... It was through Rod's office. And then quite quickly after that, they were gone and never mentioned again. And also early on, and, and in fairness in this instance, I think pretty much every manager in LA had them at one point. Uh, before they were famous, he had Guns N' Roses. And he had them again, didn't he? He had them... Oh, oh was it they, Chinese democracy or something when they... That era. Yeah, when that, they just were essentially unmanageable. That he was that them. was yeah that was yeah. Merck Mercuriadis. That's right. Space who worked, bats. He worked for worked for Rod. Space bats. That's what he, he used to be known as space bats because he looked like um you know you remember the Fast Show, John Thompson had that character who was a, a scientist. He was an oh, American. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He was yeah. an American scientist, and he used to start off by saying something really learned, like he said, "We're here at the Hubble Telescope, <laughs> and we're looking at we're looking at Observatory Number Twenty Seven, you know." And they'd go to him, "And what are you looking for?" And he go. We're looking for space bats. <laughs> it's just a, a stupid joke, but he looks so much like Merck. We would also have space bats is on the phone because Merck had the job. I didn't know that. Merck had the job of doing this, these, the secondary bands, didn't he? I mean, he was Rod's right hand man. Yeah, but in the, he, early days. He, the one I really associate him with was the Almighty, who were kind of oh, good, yeah, really good British rock that. band. Yeah, yeah, who never, Warwick, yeah, right. who never quite made it, but. Um, but nonetheless, you know, I mean, you say they never made it. They're on the covers of magazines and so on. But Merck was, was their guy, you know. You saying that reminds me of when you and I were on Raw magazine, yeah. which was, I don't mean to mischaracterise it, but just for our listeners, a little bit like a, almost like a <laughs> mini, mini maybe, me Kerrang. Maybe hadn't heard of Raw. Is that what you're trying to say? <laughs> like Kerrang. Yeah. But. Yeah. Like, less... like, like Rod and Merck. <laughs> You had Kerrang! And you and had then you Raw. Had its sister publication, yeah, yeah, Raw. Yeah. Um, uh, you and I, because uh, Raw had a, an enormous staff of like two or three, or <laughs> yeah, whatever that's it was. Right. And I was in again as a temporary yeah, yeah. news editor. Do you remember that? 
I I'm do. back as the yeah. temporary yeah. or part time or something. But anyway, and um, Rod invites us out for dinner, you and me, yeah. because the Almighty have an album coming out. And this was, as you say, Rod would prep everybody. Yeah. And we went for this uh, evening with him where it was booze, booze, booze. Yeah. Unsurprising, and, and we and we were and we you and I were laughing. Amazingly enough, day. there was a drink involved. Yeah, <laughs> you were laughing, yeah. going, "I love." About two hours in, when Rod's going, "Well, John, you know." Uh, the first Almighty cover we're going to do on Raw. Yeah. <laughs> this is how it's going to be. And then three months in, when we release the next single, yeah. that's when you do the second yeah. cover. And you're going, "I'm not putting the fucking Almighty <laughs> on the cover of Raw." I went, "I think you are." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> ha 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 ha! But that was how it all went back in the day, wasn't it? Yeah. And Ricky was Ricky. That's what I just remember. Ricky was married to the girl who was on MTV. Yeah. Oh, Vanessa. Vanessa, Vanessa, yeah. So they were a good... Vanessa I mean, I, Warwick. I think, that, I think that's how we resolved the problem. I've got a feeling what we did was we put Ricky and Vanessa on the cover <sighs> as some kind of love, sex or love or something, you know. Posh something. Yes, yeah, yeah, something. Metal version. That was kind of how we resolved the whole... Kind of a Brangelina. Yeah, of, of heavy metal, yeah. And it worked brilliantly because we can still remember it to this day. Well, you can. <laughs> I t- I'm sure that's what we did. That would have been a great... God, I've got to come up with something here because I've said to Rod I'll do it, you know. Oh, God. So going back to great managers, uh, again, thinking of Rod, but also Sharon, okay? Yeah. A couple of things that really impressed me. Um, and, and you can look at these things in isolation and go, well, that's entirely manipulative. But I, my analogy is always, you go to a great restaurant and you get the best waiter or waitress ever. She smiles mm. or he smiles, whatever it is. You know, they're, they're just fan fantastic they make you feel good now is that because they really love you mm. or is it because you know they want a really good and, tip and they're good at their job and they're really great at yeah. their job yeah. answer i don't care yeah i don't care how the burger is made i just want it to taste fucking good right yeah. rod and sharon masters of yeah. this and i'll give you two examples uh it, it, back in the 80s mid to late 80s when maiden kind of really ruled the roost um, I had a regular girlfriend, um, and she would come to all the shows. Um, and at the start of every Iron Maiden world tour, he would his office would send me in the post to access all areas wow. laminates right. that didn't just get you into the UK tour or the European tour. Anywhere they went for the next 12 or 18 months, have along there on the road, Japan, anywhere, you got in. And so did she. Wow. So I could go anywhere in the world and bring her. Now, the fact is, I, I probably didn't take her anywhere mm. in the world other than some Iron Maiden shows in England. But it made my life so much easier. And I just thought, class. Yeah. That's classy. Yeah. And then when my mum died, um, she died in her late 40s. It was, she was ill. And, and uh, I, I was still in my 20s, didn't know how to handle this at all. So I just didn't talk about it to anybody. Um. And at her funeral, and I have to this day no idea how they knew, because I didn't, I didn't know how to discuss yeah. it. Um, at her funeral, there was the most magnificent wreath, and it was from Rod wow. and Steve and all the boys in my Yeah, yeah. And I'll tell you what, John, at that point, I was never, ever, ever going to write a bad review of Iron Maiden ever again. Yeah. Did I feel manipulated? I understood. I understood 
what was going on. At the same time, I didn't give a fuck. No, but also my, my my sense would be that was a genuinely nice thing to do as a well. Genuinely, it you know, it wasn't a, a big thing to them, but it was a big thing to you. You know, it was a good a human gesture. Sharon Osbourne. Um, and also Maiden were the first group to give me gold records, you know, because yeah. I my important part in, you know, whatever yeah. it was. Your vital review vo- somewhere in time. <laughs> K, 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 and an extra K for luck. No, didn't, didn't you give seventh son of a seventh son seven Ks? Probably. Obviously. Of course you did. Who doesn't? Who wouldn't? Well, that is one of their great... Yeah. I think that probably is the greatest I Do you? Yeah. Definitely, for, I haven't listened to any of their albums for a few years, but yeah. for me at that time, that was that was that was class. Yeah. Sharon Osbourne, um, uh, yeah, Ozzy didn't have a stellar career as a solo artist in the eighties. It, it sort of built, mm. but he was really huge in America and what what they call the Pacific Rim, but not so much Europe and the UK. Yeah, I'd do the Hammersmith Odeon album would go yeah. in the chart and go out again. Um, and she was always exceedingly kind to me because at that point I was like the guy on Koran, you know. And then um, I remember I got a job at Capital Radio presenting the weekly rock show. Yeah. And how she knew, I don't know. But I got the phone call saying, I had to audition and all this stuff. Yeah. I got the phone call saying I'd got the gig. And that afternoon, bzz, at the door, there's a biker with, um, I don't know what you call it, like a presentation set with three bottles of vintage champagne, wow. yeah. champagne flutes. And yeah. it was, congrats on the new show, Sharon and Ozzy. Wow. Yeah. Guess whose fucking record got played on that first yeah, show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And again and again. Yeah. So, you know, or is it pay? Are you being bright? No. No. No, you're being given a nice big kiss yeah. and you're going, that felt good. I want another one. Yeah. I mean... Yeah. I don't know. So, well, so you to know, me, that's clever. As management. they say, Mick, as they say, one hand washes the other. Absolutely. That's how it works. You know? Absolutely. Where, where Peter Mensch, for instance, made more of an art of kicking your ass, <laughs> yeah. never saying thank yeah. you for anything. Well, this anything. was the thing. I think there were, you know, there was a sort of a. We've talked about the, the big guys and who were tremendously classy and sort of knew how to throw their weight around. And as ever, you then got the imitators who were slightly below them, who sort of just copied the throwing their weight around bit but didn't realize there was another side to it all yeah absolutely i mean i think um i think you're absolutely right i, I, rem- I-, I remember the guy from cinderella phoning me I-, I gave a terrible review i think to cinderella what was once. his name he, his um, name was larry mazer which larry i forgot Mazer's for a long time and i remembered it when i was driving over in the car today because i was thinking about that um larry mazer was he was a mate of del boy oliver or is now or something i think yeah. I mean, maybe he's done all right. I don't know. I don't know. Larry, I'm sure you're all good. You know, I always gold. used to like Larry, yeah, yeah. but, but I'd, I'd go mm. to meetings with him with Ross and Ross would rip him to bits. Yeah. Yeah. I think he was, a, he was going to shove 50,000 albums right up my ass. <laughs> he phoned me to say that when the, when the well, review came out. Yeah, gave a bad review. I, this album, he goes, you called it. 
I, it was some, they'd made some sort of terrible blues album, you know. It was like, who wants to hear Cinderella doing blues, you know? With, with they've, got hair, hair they've got up hair here. up to here. They've just ah. done Mad Gypsy Road, won't you? you know, that's, that's what I want, you know. I don't want, oh, I'm down here in the Mississippi mud, you know, and all that. Down to my last million. Yeah, yeah. I've got the bad, bad Hollywood yeah, hills. But they all do, you know, again, this comes down to management. We should talk about this in a minute. But it comes down to, to steering your artist, you know. Musicians always want what they haven't got. If they've, if they've got credibility, they want the sales. If they've got the sales, they want the credibility. The correct answer to getting the credibility is, look, in a couple of albums' time, I'll get you a solo deal. You, make your, we'll make, you can make a nice little solo album, you know, and you do your blues. And all that. But when you're in Cinderella, mate, yeah. you, put, you put the makeup on, you do the fucking night songs, you know. That's the point of being in Cinderella. And that's why someone <clears> like Def Leppard, for instance, uh, have been apart from being very, very good. But one of the reasons their career was so well managed, they were managed by Peter Mensch and his partner, Cliff Bernstein. But they never... I mean, Joe Elliott has had various side projects in the last couple of decades, but they never diluted the brand um, yeah. by yeah. going, well, this next Leopard album is going to be a blues album. <laughs> yeah. I mean, fuck off. Yeah, yeah. But why? Yeah. Why would you do that? Yeah, well, exactly. Why? Because it sort of bewilders the fans and all the rest of it. And it, it's just, it's indulgent in a way it doesn't need to be, you know. And, and I think a good manager sees it. Maiden are the same. Ma you know, if, if I'm Maiden made an album tomorrow, I could tell you what it's going to sound like. It's not going to be a sort of, it's not going to be, oh, we've suddenly got into drill music. <laughs> you know? It ain't going to be that. You know. <laughs> uh, well, now you come to you mention, come to mention. <laughs> So Larry Mazer goes, oh, yeah, he literally must have just read the... He was so angry, so incredibly angry. You know, but because I suppose you come in and maybe in the back of your mind you know or you sort of think that's the reaction I don't want. You know, yeah. That's the one thing I don't want people to say. No. You know. I'll tell you one manager we haven't mentioned, and I, and I think um, uh, we'll probably have to come to the end of this shortly because I, I think like all our episodes there will be a follow-up. Yes, I'm sure, they will. I'm sure they will. You mention one and I'll mention one. I've got one little one I want to mention. You, you, you will you do the one. little one? Because the one I've got is, is, will be a longer discussion. Oh, OK. Well, this is a short one. I want to mention it. And people never believe this when you tell them. We talk about bands who were kind of rock and roll in their time. One band who was pretty rock and roll in their time were Marillion. Oh, yeah. And Fish. People don't realise just how just, rock and I mean, roll they, they were. On the road, they were... They were more know, like it, the, the fucking <laughs> Led Zeppelin yeah. than they were... Especially, especially Fish and um, probably Mark. <laughs> were the lads, I'm, I'm actually bursting into yeah. sweat at this point. <laughs> because you're Recalling hotel rooms oh, with Fish exploring the universe. Yeah, I remember being in Scotland in the middle of winter at some point. About three in the morning, finally got to bed. You know, you get to your room and you think, oh, thank Christ, you know. Finally get to, oh, no. <laughs> get you in there. <laughs> Try in there, hot and quiet, lightweight. You were lightweight. I'm trying to be really quiet, you know, trying to pretend I'm not in there. You know? But he knows I'm in there. Come on, come on. Drag us out. We went to Bannockburn. We went to the field at Bannockburn to see where Robert the Bruce... Three Robert, the Robert, it, it was still dark. It was still fucking dark. Ray Palmer's there. <laughs> Ray had no idea where he was. Ray the photographer. Uh, yeah, yeah, Ray the photographer. He had no idea where he was. No point in having a camera because it was fucking pitch black. Grindelman, <laughs> fish is out of his fucking mind, but doing this amazing speech about, you know, it was like Braveheart. Incredible. So, yeah, they were... Sort of, go on, you've come... Well, 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 Mark Kelly, I mean, what a man, you know. 
continue? No, 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 Kerry Gordon. No, 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 please. Well, wasn't he your... I could be sure... His nickname at the time was something like Mad Jack or Mad Bill or something, wasn't it? It was another persona. I don't remember that. Don't you remember? I'm no, sure it no, was. No, it would have I'm fitted sure quite well. Yeah. I always liked but, Mark. But Great anyway, guy. we're going we're to go on forever. But they were managed by a guy called, at the time called John Arneson. They were. John Arneson. And the first time I ever met John... Was at some recording studio where Marillion used to do this great thing when they'd start an album. They used to call it Big House with Comfy Sofas. They'd move into a big country house. <laughs> they had comfy sofas. And they'd, they'd practice their art. You know, they'd write an album. I think it was actually when Steve Hogarth had just joined. They went to this place called The Mushroom Farm. Um, was that down, which, in, down in Sussex. It's, yeah, near, it's out near Gatwick. Yeah, I went yeah, there. Yeah, 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 yeah. And they did this amazing thing, actually, where they. they, they Begun working on Season's End, which was Steve's first album with, with and, and they because the Mushroom Farm wasn't a proper studio, it was like a rehearsal studio. It's where right. you went before. This was like the little big house where you went into the big big house <laughs> to actually do the album pre-production, as they say. It's basically sitting around, you know, Smoking, joking, that, like having about, you know, yeah. writers saying ridiculous things. But and they said, "Oh, we're going to." They said, "We haven't got anything recorded, but we'll play it to you if you want." And they set up in this semicircle. And I sat in the middle of them. And it was honestly, I remember it to this day, they were fat. Yeah, that's when you realise the power of a really good band. Right. The actual physical power. Right. It was like, it would have been the same as being on stage with them. That, it was that close. It was me to you, you know. Wow. And it was amazing. I know John Arneson's there. <clears throat> and I've met him before, but for some reason we get to him, he, he said to me, uh, where do you live? I said, oh, I live in Fleet in Hampshire. He goes... He goes, I live in Fleet. I said, do you? you never meet anyone who lives in Fleet. He goes, and I said, well, I live in Church Crookham. He goes, I live in Church Crookham. I said, oh, bloody hell. I said, well, I live in the, you know, name the street. And he goes, oh, I live in such and such. And he lived just around the bloody corner. We ended up. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and the other thing I was going to say about John was the, the, uh, the Peter Grant story about the suitcases. I remember being at the Le Zenith in Paris with Meridian. Do you remember Le Zenith? Of course, yeah, yeah. It, was, it was like a big, uh, it's like a circus. It was a bit like the O. The O2, but before the O2, you know, a big circus tent thing, big venue. And uh, afterwards, this was back when there were still francs. It was before the euro, you know. And Arneson's got this big bag full of French francs. You know, he goes, here, he goes, stick this up your jumper. Sticks this bag of francs up a jumper. We just, we just taking it back to the hotel or something, I think. But yeah, it's so weird you telling that story because I was about to tell you a John Arneson story. Oh, go on, no, do when they headlined the Milton Keynes Bowl, right? In whatever year that was, 18. yeah, they when they were really big at that they point, they were huge yeah, yeah. and there were like 60,000 people, yeah. There. And we're all staying in the same hotel and it's a big party. And then the next day, the Sunday, everybody feeling very fragile. John Arneson. Oh, he was great, John Arneson. <laughs> well, did he talk like that? A little bit like that. And, uh, a bit, he was a bit of a geezer. He was a, a geezer. A bit of an operator. And he came out with this big like green felt bag or something <laughs> with all the takings. <laughs> with a pound note sign on it. Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> and a striping jumper yes. and a mask. <laughs> and he, come, he comes over to me and he goes, stick that oh, up there you go. It's jumper. obviously his trick, wasn't that it, was with journalists? Thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I've got one other great John Arneson story, and I think this does show you how important managers are. Yeah. Uh, it was one of those very late nights with Marillion on the road, yeah. Fish, and, um, oh, God, you know, tons of cocaine and yeah. craziness. 
And, uh, and in the middle of it, Fish is kind of getting a vision. <laughs> they, 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 they've done misplaced childhood, and yeah. Kaylee, yeah. you know, they're, they're mega. They're, yeah. they, they're probably going to be the new Pink Floyd in America. Yeah. You know? And in fact, Rod Smallwood was going to be their American manager. Right, and right. It's all this moment where everything's happening. And Fish is on the bed, and all the band are in there. None of the band are paying any attention. They're too busy having a laugh and having fun. But Fish is having an artistic vision. Yeah. And he's saying to me, he's going, yeah, yeah, this next album, you know, uh, I can see the cover already. And he's, de- <laughs> and he's describing the cover. And he goes, it's, it's like Lawrence of Arabia. You know, there's, this, there's a face of a guy. And John yeah. goes, what, your face? <laughs> your face? He's like, fuck off, John. It doesn't have to be my face. He goes, he's in the desert, <laughs> the piercing blue eyes and that sand. And John goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. But what we really want to know is, is are you going to write another fucking hit single? You could put fucking Godzilla on the cover. We don't give a fuck, but are you going to write a hit? Where's the hits? And Fish is like, fuck off, John. Yeah. Like, can't you see I'm having a, uh, um, yeah, yeah. I'm having a moment. Yeah. And John's like, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. Sick of an elephant's ass on the car. Give a <laughs> fuck, mate. Is there a hit on it? That's yeah. what I want to yeah. know. Well, yeah. Good management. Art for art's sake, hits it's for fuck's sake. sake. That's yeah. right. That's, that's the, the exact saying. Okay, I'm going to mention one more name. There are many that we haven't touched on. I mean, the mm. legendary Doc McGee. Doc, uh, we can. I'm sure Doc deserves his own episode. Doc definitely deserves yeah. his own episode. Um, but another name I wanted to mention because it doesn't get bandied around amongst the kind of Mount Rushmore of managers. And I think it should. And that's Alan Niven. Yes. Now, Alan, yes. Alan, Alan Niven. A thousand many, times. Yes, absolutely. Um, Alan uh, uh, was the guy that took Guns N' Roses from an unmanageable mess um, and turned them into the most famous band in the world. Yeah. Uh, he didn't write the songs, um, but, but, he could, but he could write songs. Alan was a, you know, was he is a, a, mus- a, a musician and songwriter because he had already had success with Great White. Who he co-wrote uh, a lot of their best material yeah. with. So he knew what he was talking about musically. But um, the the vision he showed and, and patience and... And tricks that he pulled to get guns and to a keep them together. Yeah. They were breaking up all the time. Yeah. Well, as you like slash there, <laughs> you still got a band to write about. Well, he, Alan told me the first time <clears throat> at this point that they've just been signed to Geffen. They haven't done the album yet, um, or maybe they've started it. I don't know. But but every manager in LA, including Rod Smallwood. Uh, had passed on them basically because mm. they were just too much fucking trouble, yeah. you know. Um, not in a good way, you know, no, in, a, no. in a really impossible way. No. I mean, they, to yeah, people, way. yeah, this was part of Alan's genius was he, he turning them into rock stars. I mean, the first time they turned up in London, yeah, Mark, and I remember them coming to the Kerrang Stroke Sounds office, and no joke, they looked like tramps. Yeah. I mean, they didn't look like rock stars, they, you know, they, well, they smelled, were tramps, they, they? They, yeah. They had like one set of clothes and they'd been on the plane in them and they'd been on tour in them and yeah, oh, very much so, yeah. yeah. And, and, and he told me the very first show he ever went to see, you know, to, to will, will he manage them? Um, Axel didn't turn up. <laughs> talk, talk about, yeah, talk about it was a red a, flag. It wasn't a Thursday with a seven in it. Of course he didn't turn <laughs> up. His, his guru had told him not to fucking come. And the band are going, what are we going to do? And he says, yeah. just get on there and do the gig. Yeah. 
And I can't remember the end of this story of Axel. I think Axel turns up. Probably, because the minute he hears the... It's like, no, fuck that. I'm going, don't do it with that. But, but, those, but I remember, yeah, I mean, Alan has told him, I'm sure he's told millions of stories. Some of them were just hair curling. But he, but he was the guy who would, you know, the joke about the mandolin strings. If he hears that Slash has, uh, you know, I don't know, been in a fight in, you know, wherever they are on tour... I remember him saying, you know, even if he was married or whatever, just had a kid or something like that, you know, he would drop whatever he was doing and get on the next plane and sort it out personally. He also, again, before they became the Guns N' Roses we immediately think of now, mm. I remember when they came to London for the first time, they did the marquee, and um, like a lot of bands, they came into the office and all that business. And I remember thinking they were definitely good. But I could not have imagined in a million no. years that no. they would go on to become so yeah. successful. And, um, but at this early stage, I remember going to Los Angeles. Um, I, I don't know what I was doing, but it definitely wasn't Guns N' Roses. And Alan sent a limo to meet me at the, at the airport. And uh, again, I just thought, I love this fucking guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Guns and Roses. I tell you what. While I'm in LA, I'll do a story on them as well. Not because I wanted to, but I just felt I'll do something. This guy's done something nice for me. I'll do something nice for him. Um, but he was like that. I mean, Arlette Fariki, who, who kind of was their unofficial publicist in the early days. Yeah, she was getting paid. Uh, I think there came a period where she wasn't getting paid. There was always, you know, but she was fiercely loyal. One of the main reasons they got as much amazing press as they did. And I remember she told me, and I can't remember if it was, we can't pay you right now, or they were paying her and it was just a thing on top. But he sent over a case of Dom Perignon champagne. Um, and it was mm. just out of the blue. Yeah. And having worked with a lot of managers uh, as a PR at record companies, and of course as a, a journalist, this does not happen as often as no, people might imagine. No, I think, yeah, yeah. Um, Alan was about spreading the love. Yeah. I mean, the fact that he was a musician and songwriter as well. Yeah, there's a sort of touch of an old, in the nicest way, an old hippie about him, you yeah. know. He just, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the man much. read books. But, yeah, yeah, oh, he had a big inner life, and but uh, had that kind of hand of steel. You know, it's funny, you mentioned uh, one other person we didn't mention, we won't go into now, but always think of when I think of Arlette, Pete Angelus, you know. Pete Angelus, who started out with Van Halen. Yeah, the Picasso brothers, him and Dave Lee Roth. You know, yeah. they were it was that period when they were inseparable, weren't yeah. they? And, and uh, you know, Roth was always hanging around with Arlette and Angelus was always there. You know, another great manager. But, but I think... Yeah. Can I tell you a great Pete Angelus yeah. story, yeah. just quickly? Because Pete Angelus was... Um, was he the lighting director for Van Halen? He started out somewhere on the yeah. an important yeah, job. Yeah, because there was that guy Noel Noel Monk. Monk that's he it. Was yeah. the he was the manager. 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 Yeah. Um, so when Roth leaves Van Halen, Pete becomes his de facto manager. Yeah. But it's the Picasso brothers. So really, yeah. it's I think they're back to fifty fifty yeah. or yeah. or more even in yeah. Roth's favour. I yeah. don't know. But Pete was so he was he, he could have been in a Scorsese movie. Yeah. You know. He, yeah. he, he, he looked like a New York, uh, good-looking New York mob guy, made man. Yeah. But he was in L.A. and he had all that L.A. thing going on. And so he, he takes Roth, big success, starts to get a little shaky, but then he starts managing the Black Crows. That's right, yeah. 
And it so happened I had a, a, an early demo of theirs, and at this Christmas party we were both at, I played it, and he was like, where did you get this? I've just started managing them. And so we kind of bonded, and I did some stories about the Black Crows. And they weren't big yet. Um, they were, they, the album hadn't even come out yet. And uh, there was one, um, this is a very L.A. in that era kind of story. I was arguing on the phone with Bernadette Coyle <laughs> at Phonogram over yeah. which hotel I stayed in. Yeah. That was the, the empire days of the music That business. was the yeah. empire where I would be yeah. like, that's not good enough yeah. for me. She wanted me to stay at the park. And Ross had told me the park yeah. was full of hookers. <laughs> Like, that's a bad thing, you know. So she was like, well, we're putting you at the park. And I'm like, the park? Yeah. That's full of hookers. <laughs> and then she was like, well, we'll put you at the hire. I went, the riot house? Yeah. That's like a B&B, &B, yeah. you know. Well, where do you want to sit? The sunset, yeah, sunset marquee. Yeah. She goes, but that's too expensive. I yeah. said, well, guess what, Bernadette? I'm already here, so you've got to pick up the tab. <laughs> Which was That's true. what it was like dealing with Mick Wall back in the day. Forget Peter Grant. So we have this blazing row on the phone. I hang up. It's about 9.30 in the morning on a hot LA morning. I haven't even had a shower yet. I stink, you know. And uh, about 20 minutes later, there's a... And Bernadette's in London, by the way. And I'm in LA. So at the door, I go to the door. And here is this absolutely stunning-looking woman, young woman, blonde... Mm with an English accent, but who'd obviously been working in L.A. for a while, and she's carrying a tray with a pitcher of tequila margarita on it, wow. two frosted glasses, <laughs> and she goes, Pete Angelus sent me. Oh! And I'm like, come on in. Yeah, come in. And I'm like, what's this? And she said, Pete says you were having a bad morning and this might make you feel better. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, that did yeah. make you feel good. And, and I'm thinking, what is the limit to this? Is it just yeah. a drink? Or, yeah, you know? yeah. And um, yeah, we, we had a very pleasant morning. Yeah, a lovely morning, yeah. Very pleasant That's morning. The point. And do you know what the problem is with so, the hotel? <laughs> just went away. Just eased away. Yeah. Eased yeah. away. Well, as I wrote another cover story <laughs> on the brilliant new yeah. band, The, the Black, Black Crows. Crows. And that is... But, management yeah that's man i loved yeah. pete though because he was genuinely funny yeah yeah he was he was shot as sharp as dave was really i think maybe even because he had more perspective but that that kind of yeah the, but they kind of you know verbal i'll tell you right. one last angeles on. story and i think this this showed him his true kind of acumen mm. in man management the Black Crows were shooting their first video for that song, Jealous Again. Yeah. It wasn't Tell a hit. because I'm jealous. Great song, Jealous man. Again. Jealous again. Jealous. <laughs> Always drunk on Sunday. That one. Oh, is that yeah. the lyric? Do you remember Always that? Always drunk on Sunday. That's the other, that's the next Perfect. bit of it. Yeah. I've got a theory, by the way, that all great records, hit records, are based on na 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 That's it. That's, 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 it's as simple as that. Why you haven't written a hit record <laughs> remains a mystery. All right now. <laughs> You're just saying the tune in the, in the same voice. <laughs> yeah. I'm telling that's you. That's a bit like that. I was, telling, I was telling you that story the other day about the, in John Niven's book, Kill Your Friends, about right. the, the, the music publisher who gets sued and he has to go to court. Right. And they say to him, how do you make a hit record? Because <laughs> he's got a writing credit on right, every... They say to him, well, how do, you write a, how do you write a song? You know, And he goes, well, you just get some kids in a room, you get a beat going. <laughs> 
That's and his you answer. Go, That's his answer. Break it down, boys. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, I'm going to finish my Angelus story in a second, but. Going full circle back to Colonel Tom, he was, if you look at all those early uh, Elvis hits, Elvis currently is the co-writer. (laughs) Because Colonel would go to these songwriters, blue suede shoes or whatever Mm. it is, and go, well, listen, you can have 100% of nothing, or you can have 50% of an Elvis Presley hit. What would you like? Guess what they liked. And... Years later, Sharon Osbourne did pretty much the same thing. Oh. When Bark at the Moon came out, and if you you can probably Google it, if you look at the original um, LP sleeve mm. of Bark at the Moon, you turn it over and it says, uh, written, arranged and produced by Ozzy Osbourne. Yeah. And I was sitting with Ozzy <laughs> in a TV studio about to interview him about that album. And before we go live, he goes, he goes, Fucking look at that, mate. <laughs> Written the rage and produced for yours. And he goes, that's all fucking true. He goes, I couldn't produce a fucking fart. <laughs> It says I've written it. I've yeah. never even fucking heard those I've got, songs. I've got to say one of the great <laughs> rites of passage of being the Kerrang news editor was every time an Aussie album came out about six months later was the phone call from Bob Daisley. Oh, saying, I wrote that well, I wrote song. that. Sharon's, Sharon's you know, done this, that and the other, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So, but so to 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 finish the Angelus story, um, the Black Crows are recording their first video for Jealous Again. Jealous Again. And 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 Angelus and Dave are still the Picasso brothers. They're yeah. still partners. And Dave is still a big star. You know, he, he he's not quite as big as he was, mm. but he's still selling out the Forum in yeah. LA and all yeah. this. And uh, so Dave mucks in. So Dave is at this video shoot. I'm at the video Mm. shoot. It's late at night. And uh, there are loads of these gorgeous models that are just there to kind of writhe around in the video. The band are miming, pretending to play. And there's just all these babes everywhere. And it's because Roth has bust them in. Roth is like, if you're (laughs) going to do a video, you've got to have loads of babes. Rule number one, babes. There's no such thing as too many babes in a video. And the band are like not fucking happy. This is not their vibe at all. Yeah. And there's a row. And you know what it's like when there's a row and you're there yeah, as the journalist. Yeah, yeah. They're desperate to yeah. not let you see or hear. But sometimes you're you're looking for somewhere to hide. Yeah. And there isn't anywhere. Big row. And eventually Chris Robin, Robinson says to Pete Angelis, either he fucking goes or you do. And Black Crows haven't sold shit at yeah, this point. Yeah. And then Rich Robinson's going, Van Halen don't mean shit to me. And it's like, wow. Yeah. But Pete Angelis puts his arm round Dave's yeah. shoulder and he's kind of talking and he's and, the, and he leads him off. He kind of leads it's a bit like the Colonel leading Elvis into yeah, the wings yeah. to be hypnotized. You know. <laughs> he, he he leads him off. And Dave, I've never I've never seen him like his head is down, he's kind of muttering and I'm just trying to help these guys. I don't know what they're doing, you know. And uh, we went back the next night. All the babes are gone. Roth has been banned from the set. And they record the video that we now know, which was so unremarkable. I I, I personally... babes. Personally was looking for the babes, didn't see any. But that was Pete Andrews. He he was able to smooth it over. The moment of real tension... Uh, Trying to explain to David Lee Roth in 1990 that Van Halen didn't mean shit. Yeah. 
was really, you know, yeah. you can say it now, yeah. but back then was yeah. like, whoa, yeah. wow, you know. Yeah. So, well, um, yeah, go on. Well, well look, I thought we could maybe end on, we talked about Alan Niven. I reckon one of the great acts of management I, I would give you as a, a, as a good example to close because it sort of ties into the modern day. Use your illusion one, use your illusion two. How do you follow up Appetite for Destruction? You release two albums on the same day. Two double albums. Two double albums on the same day. <laughs> a remarkable piece of management summed up by the fact that he did. He was probably among the first to do the it's going to be released at 12 o'clock at night, right. Tower Records right. is going to open. Right. And outside Tower Records at 12 o'clock on the night of release in a limousine, doubtless with babes, waiting to get his copies of Use Your Illusion 1 and Use Your Illusion 2, is Donald Trump. Right. You know, that's marketing. That's marketing. Yeah. That's how you do it. That's how you do it, baby. Yeah. That's how we do it, that's baby. How we do, that's how Alan does it. That's why he's living in half of America. <laughs> <laughs> Alan Niven, we're going to revisit that one day soon, I think, because mm. his story is extraordinary. Remarkable what he did with story, Guns yeah. N' Roses was a yeah. very unique thing, uh, yeah. set of circumstances. Yeah. Right, John, I think that's how we do's it. We've dudes it. We've dudes it <laughs> for another uh, time, and uh, we'll catch you all again on the flip, on the boulevard yeah. of broken dreams. Yeah. If you liked this episode, be sure to leave us a review, share it with a friend, or plain old subscribe wherever you happen to listen to it. For full episode show notes, visit nofilter.media forward slash get your rocks off. This has been a No Filter Media production. Say what you want.